0: I'm so glad to be with you this morning. This is another week where we are uh, engaging with the gospel of Mark. Uh, this is actually part number 30. Uh, we are uh, in chapter 14, sort of midway. We're going to look at several verses in the middle of this chapter. We are nearing the end of this gospel, if you can believe it. Uh, or maybe you do believe it because it's been so long. <laughs> uh, I, I have, I'll, I'll make fun of my dad um, because he's not watching. He's preaching right now. Um, he uh, spends almost five years or so in John. So um, I'm not as long winded as him. So if he's, he'll watch this later and he'll get on to me. But that, that's fine. Um, but I'm really looking forward to closing out this gospel. Because Mark ends in a really uh, fascinating way. Uh, the way that he closes his gospel is, is really, really uh, fascinating to look at, but our passage this morning comes in the middle of chapter 14, and I think really this passage that we're going to look at really represents uh, our hope as a church, our hope as believers in the Lord Jesus, it really stems from the passage we're going to look at. And I think it's really, uh, actually, really, actually powerful for me that we are actually spending this uh, Sunday in this text. Especially because, if you didn't know or not, this is exactly a year ago at this time, was my very first Sunday as your pastor in 2019. If you can believe it's already been a year. June 8th uh, was my very, or June 9th was my very first Sunday here last year. Uh, I had spent the day previous driving uh, n- almost 10 hours <laughs> uh, and then the next day I woke up and, and preached. And the Lord has been uh, a blessing uh, a blessing to us and I pray that we have been a blessing to you because you have been a blessing to us this uh, past year. And it's also fittingly as a church too because the hope that comes from this passage represents that. It represents the fact that we are gathering together again as the church. Uh, repeating uh, uh, what is everywhere in these New Testament scriptures, assembling ourselves together, as so this is what we hope to do uh, tonight during tonight's service. But especially as we come this morning, the first Sunday of every month, we have striven to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. And here, as we, you probably gathered from our scripture text, is exactly what happens in this moment, the very first Example of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament scriptures. And it's so powerful, I think, that we look at this text. Because what Jesus does here is actually pretty incredible. There's nothing that connects us more to the early church but Christ himself and actually participating in communion. It's something that has been happening in the church for millennia. And as we share in this time together, our thoughts should run towards this moment. This moment where Jesus is with his apostles first establishing this institution. And what it means and what it looks like. I often wondered as I was studying this text just what the mood was like in that room that evening. What, what was the mood like as they were sitting around that table as you will see in a moment, this was definitely a strange meal. One that was not often uh, repeated, but I'm sure one that was definitely remembered. Because in a lot of ways, at the beginning of this day, as we're going to look at in a minute, uh, this was just another Passover. A- another, uh, a- another year in which they would participate in this high Jewish holiday There wasn't anything overtly different, at least in their minds, when they woke up that morning. Woke up that morning. It was just going to be another day when they could commemorate this wonderful holiday in the Jewish religion and custom. And yet for our Lord, he knew it all along that it was much different. That this Passover meal that they are about to share was the most most powerful Passover meal in the history of humanity. Let's look really quickly. Look at verse 12. I want to look at this passage from verse 12 all the way through twenty-six. And three different scenes. The first scene covers verses 12 through 16. And I've just called this scene the secret preparation. Because look at what happens. Look at verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover we are told that this is the first day of unleavened bread. If you're keeping track of Holy Week as we've kind of been noting in the last several weeks, as we've been marching through what we call, as the church, Holy Week, this is what some churches call Maundy Thursday. This would be the Thursday of the week. The third the day before Good Friday. Is what is uh, happening here. And on this day, uh, at least in the Jewish tradition, uh, the Passover uh, is the day before uh, Passover. This is a day all about preparation. Preparing yourself, preparing uh, the meal, preparing your house, preparing everything. Making sure down to the very last detail, everything is ready for this celebration. And Mark, that's definitely why Mark includes this detail in verse 12. We noted at the very beginning of the study that Mark is not writing to, uh, not likely writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing towards Gentiles, uh, (laughs) most likely Romans. And if you look at verse 12, again, that's why he includes that little detail. He says, when they killed the Passover lamb. He's giving them a little clue as what this day really means. He's not just skipping over it. And I think it's important that he does do that. He's trying to get into the minds of his readers the significance of this day. They're preparing for this celebration, this feast. This explanation would be a key one for those that are not really accustomed to this practice. But they come, and they come to Jesus. Where do you want us to go? Where should we go that we may prepare for this Passover? And there's a lot that I love about these next two verses. Verses 13 through 15, they kind of just appear nothing more than just narrative exposition. as just something including so we can get to the next point. But there's something really uh, marvelous and revelatory, I think, that they reveal about Jesus himself. Look at how he answers. Where do you want us to go and prepare? And he sent out two of his disciples in verse 13 and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared there Make ready for us. Three quick things I just want to point out to you about these verses. Because they have fascinated me. It's just fascinating to note that Jesus' recognition of this Passover holiday. That he's, he, he's not sort of resigning himself out of, of Of recognizing ritual, recognizing custom or anything like that. He is actually very much aligning himself with all of the regular customs in Jewish society. He himself is participating in this meal. It's a high holiday that meant a lot for Jewish people, of course. It was a meal that was uh, supposed to uh, re- make them mindful and remembering when, uh, when that angel passed over them. The blood that is on the doorframe, And the angel passed over them and the angel of judgment did not pass his judgment on them. When they were captive and in bondage in Egypt. It's a day that has much meaning for them. And here Jesus is noting that, yes, we are going to participate in this. But in in this holiday, there's also a lot that Jesus is trying to hint at that it makes it even more powerful. The other thing that is fascinating to me about these verses is just uh, if you look at them, look at them again and just think and feel uh, about how secret they are. Look at, look at how he says, this is how we're going to enter the city as we are going to participate in communion. He says, go into the city and there's going to be a man. He's going to be at the corner. He's going to be holding a pitcher of water. You need to follow him. And then you follow him and watch where he goes. And then whatever house he goes in, go into that house. Give them the secret password. And then he'll lead you up to the upper room. And that's where you're going to make ready. Essentially, that's what happens. It almost sounds like something out of like a spy movie. You know, we're going to go here and meet this person, and he's going to lead you here. And then that's where you're going to be, and that's where we're going to make preparations for this meal. And it's, it jumped out to me this morning, or not this morning, but it jumped out to me when I was preparing this sermon, just how different this entrance into the city is from a few days prior. Remember, just a few days ago, Jesus enters into the city from Bethany. He enters into Jerusalem on that cult, and it's called the Triumphal Entry. Lots of fanfare, lots of people surrounding him, lots of things happening and going on. He actually goes out of his way to bring more attention onto himself as he enters the city. And here, it's completely opposite. He's entering in covertly. He's trying to sneak in with almost like stealth-like into the city. The triumphal entry a few days ago here on Monday, Thursday, this is, we could call it the confidential entry. Trying to make sure no one notices him or very few people notice him. Why does he do that? Well, I think it's the prevailing thought around this. Many commentators have answered this, and, uh, and I, my answer was kind of true as I looked at them. Is that he's trying to stave off the conspiracy against him as long as possible. To share this meal, to institute this covenant with not only his disciples, but with us, the church. He's trying to make sure that the, the unrest that surrounds him, that is reaching a fever pitch at this point, doesn't overtake this day. Overtake this meal. Because as we're going to see. He does something really picturesque and powerful. As you know, the last several days he's spent in the city almost causing an uproar. Going to the temple, turning over tables, answering all of the experts' questions, leaving them Embarrassed. He's actually caused quite a stir. Enough to the point where now he is saying we have to enter in covertly. Sneak into the city so we can share this meal together. Because this conspiracy against him is reaching a point that is going to bring death and destruction on him. But the last thing I am just struck by these verses is Jesus' sovereignty in them. Look at him again. Go into the city and a man will meet you. Carrying a pitcher Of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there. Make ready for us. He is sovereign over every part of this situation out of the very last detail. Even knowing that this man is going to be carrying a pitcher of water. Which in these days and in this custom was a task reserved mainly for women. And he is saying that you are going to see this guy, follow him, go exactly where he goes. And you are going to find one there who is favorable to me. You're going to find a disciple uh, in the city who is going to know exactly who you mean when you say the teacher. He doesn't say, give them my name. The teacher needs this room. The master has need of your guest room. Some commentators like to... uh, portray the idea that this was all prearranged, just like at the triumphal entry that Jesus prearranged to know where that cult was going to be and that he could borrow it? Maybe. But I think that kind of removes sort of what what I think we're supposed to grasp out of the scene because, again, just like that cult where he goes into the city in triumph here as he's going to the city through uh, secrecy, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He, here is another instance of Jesus being God yet human at the same time. Because he knows exactly how all of these things can come into place to allow this to happen. And yet notice that he says the teacher, the master, the Lord has need of your guest room. The master has need of something just like he the master the lord had need of that cold he has need of this room here jesus is human yet god at the same time this god in the flesh becomes the guest of this house he comes there with His disciples and such is this amazing juxtaposition of this scene that he is Lord over all of these circumstances, over all these intricate events that allow this meal to take place. And yet he would resign himself of being in a position of need. And we can go even further that he would resign himself to give himself up to be taken and crucified and tried. He knows all of these things, such as why he says that he is not being taken. He is laying down his life. And here he's proceeding again in that procession towards that judgment day. He is laying down himself to a position of need. I have need of this room. And it's fascinating because look at verse 16, just sort of an extra parenthetical statement by the gospel, or by Mark, the author. So his disciples went out, the two that Jesus chose, they went out and came to the city and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared for the Passover. Exactly as Jesus said it would, that's how it happened. Guess what? Your God, Jesus Christ, is in control of all things. He's in control of all of these events that are taking place, and he knows them all. And he knows them all even now. He hasn't yet been out of control. He hasn't let anything escape his sovereign grasp over all things. Yes, even as he's being in a few short hours actually. Even as he's about to be tortured and tried wrongfully and falsely. Even those were not out of his sovereign hand. He's in control over all these things. He's the Lord and the Savior. That is the secret preparation. But look at the next scene in verse 17. Here we have the sad declaration. And look what happens. In the evening, so the preparations have all been made. These two disciples. In another gospel it it says that these two are Peter and John. So maybe Peter and John were the ones that went out and made these preparations. It says in the evening he came with the other twelve. Or with the twelve, excuse me. So now all of them are there together in this upper room. Now as they sat in age, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. This evening now of Thursday, all of these, uh, Jesus and his twelve are in this room, they're eating, and in the middle he makes this statement. In the middle of the meal, one of you is going to betray me. <laughs> Just imagine the disciples Imagine the apostles sitting around this table. Here they're having, uh, participating in a very high holiday in Jewish custom. And your leader, who has previously in previous scenarios said that someone is going to betray me. Someone close to me is going to deliver me up. And in fact now, as this moment is reaching its most solemn, he actually makes the indication that it's actually someone in this room. Someone around this table right now is going to betray me and deliver me up. And fulfill that conspiracy that they've been planning against me. I like to think, like to think that there was not a few spit takes from the apostles. <laughs> what? Someone? One of us? One of us is going to do this, Jesus? And you can see that in their reactions. Look at Verse 18 again, surely I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, but one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Excuse me, Jesus. Talk about a buzzkill on a great meal. We're enjoying this great Passover meal. And he says, one of you guys is going to betray me to death. I mean, no wonder they started to be all sorrowful. No wonder they started to uh, uh, question, is it me? They shuddered to think that they could be the ones that could deliver up Jesus and betray him. Is it I? It really translates, it, it's not me, is it? They're actually questioning themselves. They're questioning themselves, which is really ironic. That you come to this point where Jesus is actually uh, sort of hinting more at the fact that his betrayer is one of his own disciples. Where you are made to remember that scene just a few days ago. Remember that scene where uh, a few days ago where they were actually arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Who is the greatest? Who is going to sit on your left and on your right, Jesus, when you come into glory? And here now, what are they arguing about? Who is the least vilest? (laughs) the crazy train of events that leads them to this point in a few short hours they're going to realize all of what jesus has been talking about all along and yet what's fascinating to me is that jesus knows exactly who is going to betray him it's not a, it's not a question in his mind he knows that the man that many believe, if you read some of the scriptures, you can kind of uh, sort of put details together, that many believe that John, uh, the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was on his right, and that Judas was on his left. And many believe that, uh, that when Judas, or excuse me, when John actually asks him, I think it's in the, in the gospel of John, we have that recorded for us, I think it's in John 13, uh, John, the apostle, actually asked him who it is. And Jesus gives that indication, which is recorded for us in in hinting at here in verse 20. Look at what he says. He presses further into this matter of betrayal. He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. There's a lot we could say about Judas. There's a lot, I think, that, that we can learn from Judas. You know, I, it was fascinating to me as I was reading some commentator, uh, commentaries on this passage and just looking at different views of Judas Iscariot. And just looking at different ways. uh, Some have tried to make excuses for his actions. This man Judas. Who Jesus calls the son of perdition. The son of destruction. Some have tried to say that it was actually necessary for Judas to do the things that he did. In order for the full revelation of the kingdom to be revealed. Some say that he was only doing and caring about what he was supposed to do. And that sort of removes all of the responsibility off of Judas's shoulders. But in fact, the fact of the matter is this. That Judas was just a human like you and I. With a conscience. With a, 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 with a heart. With a beating heart of flesh and blood. He wasn't uh, some sort of divine robot or machine that was programmed to bring forward and carry out this really awful bidding Judas betrayed Jesus because he decided to betray Jesus. He decided this in his heart. He chose this end. He chose this end for his life. And you have to believe that. Despite hearing every sermon that Jesus preached. Despite witnessing every miracle that Jesus performed. Despite having every opportunity to recognize his need for grace. He turned away from it. He betrayed his Lord. He betrayed the faith that Jesus was trying to engender. in not just the world, but especially these apostles that were with him, that were close to him. And yet one of Jesus' closest apostles betrays him to death. And this to me is the tragedy of Judas Iscariot. The one that I think we all ought to learn from. Is that after all he had seen and witnessed and heard, he was still unconvinced. He was still disbelieving. He still, uh, imagine, actually if you, if you go to John 13, we, we have that account for us there. Where right before this meal actually gets started, so to speak, Jesus washes his apostles feet. And one of them is Judas's. In this act of humility and deference, showing himself as the true and better servant, Jesus humbles himself, the king of all, to wash his apostles' feet. And one of them is Judas, the one who is going to go out in a few hours and betray him to death. Imagine Jesus' face. So when Jesus says that it would have been better for his betrayer, For Judas to not have been born. He's not saying that God regrets creating Judas. He's actually just I think indicating what Judas will eventually. And perhaps now has already realized. That for all of his planning and plotting and resisting. It will only end in him wishing he had never been born. Because he had rejected all of those evidences of grace. That were right in front of his eyes. And he missed them. He was unconvinced. I imagine Judas at the end of his life wished he had done things differently. Wished that there was some other decision that he could have made that could have turned things out differently. And this is the tragedy of Judas. The one that we all might and I say I wish and hope that we take to heart. Which is this, that just because you are here in these pews and you come to church week in and week out does not mean that you are saved from your sins. You can witness all the miracles you want. You can listen to all the preaching you want. You can go to church, the same church that you went to that your granddaddy went to. Saving faith is not something that you can inherit because of your heritage. Saving faith happens in your heart. Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior? This, I think, to me, is the tragedy of Judas. Because there are so many that think that they can just come to church and be here and just be close to the church. And remember what Jesus says a few short hours ago to that uh, one Pharisee? He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Yet you may not be far, but you are not that close either. Saving faith happens within your soul. and your proximity, your closeness to church has no bearing on your eternity. Only when you are saved by Jesus' blood, that is what secures your eternity. Not your closeness to church or your busyness in ministry or all of those sorts of things. It's faith. In the blood. The blood that we have sung about and read about. The blood of the new covenant that Jesus is about to institute right here for us. Which leads me to the last thing. Look at verse 22. He's made this secret preparation for this meal. This sad declaration at this meal. Now look at this sacred institution. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it. And gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. At this point in the narrative, Judas has already left. Judas has left the scene and gone about to do what he is about to do. So it's Jesus in the eleven, the other eleven that remain. And as we've already kind of hinted at and noticed. That this Passover meal is a very strange one. Taking a lot of unexpected turns. It started with Jesus washing his apostles feet. And it included this crushing devastating sad revelation. That one of his uh, own friends and disciples is going to betray him. And it ends with Jesus seemingly indicating that his followers are cannibals. (laughs) Have you ever thought about what his disciples thought? Take my body and eat. (laughs) Of course Jesus is admitting that literally. But I think this last sort of unexpected twist in this meal is to me the most important one of all. Because here Jesus, what he does, is he takes this long standing Passover tradition. Again, the tradition which was set up to commemorate that moment when the angel of judgment passed over the Israelites and actually freed them from Egyptian tyranny. It takes that tradition and he makes it commemorate his own death. Which, by the way, hasn't happened yet. He's a few short hours from and he's already establishing an institution which would make this moment sacred. Which he would say, everyone ought to remember this scene. And he shows us. Just as he's showing his apostles here in this upper room. That there's a lot more that's going on than what you just think. We're not just sharing a meal and having another Passover uh, celebration. We are That is in memory of your ancestors deliverance from captivity. Here, what we're doing, we are actually celebrating when the whole world is going to be liberated from bondage to sin. There's something a lot better going on. Not just your ancestors' freedom, but your freedom from sin, once and forevermore, is happening in this moment. We're celebrating the fact that in a few short hours, my body is going to be crushed and ripped to shreds for your sake. This is what we are remembering. That this blood again that he spills. Is the blood that he says here. Is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant that we read from Jeremiah 31. The covenant which says that they will be my people and I will be their God. Yes even though they rejected me and turned away from me constantly and over and over again. I am going to establish a new covenant. Wherein I will remember their sins no more. You should get that verse in Jeremiah 31. To me it's one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. That the God who cannot forget chooses not to remember your sins. That the God who knows all things, the order of all these events, the intricacies of all life, and all circumstances, and in all things, He chooses not to remember your sins. That is the gospel that we declare. That when he says that you are free from sin. And as he says and declares through the apostle Paul in Romans 8.1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. He means exactly that. There is no possibility of condemnation for you who believe in Christ Jesus. The true and better Passover lamb. The true and better one who has come to take away our sins. Now, here with the establishment of this sacred institution, Jesus is boldly declaring to his apostles there's no more sacrifices required, no more need for bloodshed on the altar. No more need to go into the temple and make these sacrifices on behalf of atonement. Because I am going to atone once and for all. In my own body. In my own blood. And because of me. My father's judgment will pass over you. It will pass over you and not condemn you. Why? Because you are in me. You have shared this with me. I wonder what was going through the apostles' minds. As Jesus is reordering all that they have come to be familiar with about this holiday. I would say definitely they are shocked and stunned and shaken by these words. Especially the the words, take my body. He's obviously not meaning that literally. Christians aren't cannibals. We don't believe in the transubstantiation where the fact that these elements become the body and the blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. Because just like the Passovers of uh, countless centuries before this moment and just like this moment here. Jesus is using these elements to serve as a memorial. A memorial for what he was about to do. Can you think about that in Jesus' own life? He hasn't even buried or carried all of the burdens of the cross. And he's already memorializing the fact that he's going to be the victor over them. He's already asserting the fact that he's going to reign victorious. Because he says we're going to remember this moment. It's going to be a memorial for what I'm about to do. Which leads me to say this, just like your closeness to church can't save you, partaking of elements at the Lord's Supper cannot save you. Because they are meant to be symbols, symbols to remind us of what Jesus did to save us. They are here to preach to us. To remind us of the good news that we have. And what is that good news? Is that Jesus' blood would be shed. And make this new covenant. And it would be a covenant shed for. On behalf of covenant breakers. But the elements themselves. Just partaking of them cannot save you. Which leads us again to. Why he invites us to this meal. We're invited to it to be reminded. To have the gospel preached to us. To have the good news of what Jesus has done preached to us again. He wants our hearts and our minds and our souls, our entire beings to be stirred to this type of devotion and affection. Such as what stirs his own apostles to break out and sing. They didn't perhaps know fully all that was going to happen in the next few hours. But Jesus did. It says, we're going to remember this moment as a a memorial for my victory over sin, death, and all evil. Such is what happens when we come to the Lord's table. We are preaching to ourselves that these elements represent our Lord Jesus. They ought to stir our minds and our hearts and our affections to what he did for us. If you cannot say that these things were done for you and you do not believe that, I caution you, warn you, I hastily urge you not to take one. Because that's not what it's there for. It's not there to save you. It's there to remind you of the salvation that you have. The salvation that is given to you. And guess what? If it is not yours this morning, guess what? Jesus wants you to be a part of this new covenant. The invitation is open to all. All who are needy are able to come at this table. Come to Jesus. And receive salvation. Let us pray.